Welcome to the Mindful Mutiny Podcast. I'm Jeremy Van Wert, CEO, therapist, and high-level coach. On Mindful Mutiny, we thoughtfully rebel against anything that keeps people from obtaining their highest potential. You are going to love the guest that we have today. Jim Tabucci is somebody that's been a very important person in my life for a very long period of time. Jim Tabucci is a mentor. He has an incredible amount of life experience that he's going to share with us today and things that are pretty much going to blow your mind. He is a serial social entrepreneur, and he's going to get into what this means. He's been called the Swiss Army Knife, and this is a gentleman who, who retired from Hewlett-Packard when he was 42 years old because he wanted to make an impact in the world. And he has started many things. He has uh, done done many different things in the community and has been uh, received a, a bunch of awards in the Sacramento area for the things that he's done. He is currently the program director for Next Gen Empower You program, which is suppo uh, supported as a partnership between the Cal Asian Federation and Sac State's APIDA Center. He's the developer and mentor for this program, providing his wealth of experience to the young adult participants in the program. He's also the program director for the Mandarin's Academy in Sacramento, California. He met his wife at UC Berkeley and has been happily married for the last 30 years. And he has two he has uh, twin boys, Nick and Tim, who are both Eagle Scouts and alumni of the Mandarins. They're both graduates of UC Irvine and UC Davis and work in accounting and consulting. And so with that giant mouthful, welcome, 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 Jim. Thank you, Jeremy. Appreciate it. And by the way, today is my 32nd anniversary. So, um yeah, it's just uh, just a wonder to get to this point and to you know celebrate our uh, our lives together with Joanne. Well, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Yeah, you you have lived a really remarkable life, and it starts uh, a really long time ago. I wanted to take the listeners through the real adventure of your life because it it is really something with a a bunch of high highs and interesting kinds of lows. And so one thing that I know about you is many, many years ago, I took a motorcycle trip out to a place out of Delta, Utah called Camp Topaz. And it was a Japanese internment camp. And I published a few pictures on Facebook of driving out into this nothingness space where Japanese people had been interned in World War II. And you spoke up and started sharing some of your story. And so uh, can you speak for a little bit about your family's connection to the Japanese internment in World War II? Sure, I'd be glad to. Yeah. Um, coincidentally, uh, Topaz is where my father-in-law uh, and his family spent their time. Uh, so there were a number of camps across the U.S. Uh, that was not the camp that my my family was at. Um, my mother's side of the family was at uh, Tule Lake, which is in the northern corner, uh, northeast corner of California. And then I don't know why, but my father's family was sent all the way to Rower, Arkansas, which is a couple hours outside of uh, Little Rock. Um, so just imagine that, right? Um, World War II breaks out. Um, my mother was 11 years old. My father was right around 15 years old. So they were preteen or teens at the time. Um, ter terrible time in their lives. Um, you know, if you look at my my father's side of the family, 
they were, uh, you could probably say that they were upper middle class. Um, my grandfather had started a business in Stockton, California. It's called Tabuchi's Department Store. Um, they were actually very affluent. I, I have the, the physical tax returns from the, the mid-1930s uh, from the Tabuchi Department Store. And uh, one of the tax returns said that they they reported net income of about $8,000, right? So it's just to kind of set the stage. $8,000 in, you know, just kind of post-depression era uh, of net income was a lot of money, right? You could buy a brand new custom house for about $5,000 at the time. You could buy a brand new car for maybe, you know, five to $700. So what that meant is that they were they were very wealthy. And this is the um, middle of the depression too. They were doing very yeah, well. Yeah, it was after the depression. Uh, they were doing very well. They owned their building that they they lived in. Um, in fact, Alex Spanos was uh, and his family were tenants in in our Tabuchi building, right? So Alex Spanos, you know, went on to become a billionaire and and own the Chargers, right? Well, they were they wow. were our first tenant in the building, right? Um, so, so you go forward, right? They, they were very wealthy, owned their own home, um, worked really hard. And then World War II came about. So the bombing of Pearl Harbor in, in December 1941. Um, at that point, my the Tabuchi family and, and, you know, the Nakao family, my mom's side, knew that things were going to change really drastically for them. Uh, they went forward, they had to sell all of the goods in the department store within about a week. So it was basically a fire sale, um, very, very demoralizing to them, having to close the business, vacate the house, um, move into a relocation center, which was like a half mile from their house. So they had to you know, board everything up, put everything in storage, and basically walk over um, to be imprisoned at that point. So they had everything taken away, you know, the store, the livelihood, uh, their possessions, uh, ultimately their freedom, and then go into this internment camp, uh, which was at the county fairgrounds. It was just, you know, horrible injustice to them. Um, and, and yet, um, my grandfather sat my father down in camp in, in Arkansas and told my father, he said, you know, wars only last for three years, right? How did my grandfather know that? <laughs> but but he, he told my father, he said, wars only last for three years. So get ready, right? We're going to get out of this camp. Uh, we're going to build back the business even better than it was before. All right. So, so even having all of, all of those things taken away and ultimately the freedom, my, my grandfather stayed optimistic. Even when, you know, guns are pointing at him and he's in barbed wire within this, you know, horrible uh, concentration camp that was there. Um, you know, fast forward, they did get out. The war lasted three years, <laughs> amazingly, right? Um, they got out. Um, my, my father was one of the first ones that came back to the College of Pacific and, um, and uh, enrolled in business school there. Um, my grandparents came out after that. Um, my grandfather was able to get his family back into the family home. Um, but within about three months, he got very, very sick, uh, vomiting blood, um, <clears throat> you know, losing blood and all that. And they, they determined that he had, 
he had cancer, right? And he ultimately died from that uh, about three months after leaving camp. Um, but he accomplishes his goal, which was to get the family back um, into their home. Yeah. So, so that was, uh, that was my father's side. My mother's side was also in camp. Um, my, on, on my mother's side, I should also mention that um, my mother's older sister was in Japan during World War II. So she was what's called a kibe, which means that she was sent back to live with her grandmother um, in Japan um, and to, to study and to work there. So my, my aunt um, was, uh, she was about, I think she was 16 years old um, and was a nurse's aide. And uh, it, it turned out that uh, our family lived in Hiroshima. And so my aunt was a nurse's aide on the morning of the dropping of the atomic bomb. And uh, it just happened that she was in an in an office down in the basement and when the bomb went off she was shielded by the bomb um she she got hit by a filing cabinet so that that's how close she was uh, to the epicenter um but but managed to you know get out of that hospital um but saw all all the devastation of the atomic bomb <clears throat> and uh, and she was ordered to go take refuge in a cave uh, while she was on um, the path to get to that cave, she noticed that there was this, this sick girl uh, in front of her. She picked her up, um, and uh, and that girl ended up dying in her arms on, on the way to the cave. Um, and, and, you know, so being a nurse's aide, she was told to go to the hospital. She had to take care of the sick and the dying and and to comfort them. And just just the horror of of World War II was right in front of her eyes and she never really fully recovered from that. Um, so, so again, you, you look back to world war II. That's, that's, that's where I get my strength, right? That my, my family had to endure so much, uh, so much injustice, so much imprisonment, so much of, of, of the war and, and, and the tragedy of the war that when I look at my life today, you know, they, they paved my life for me, providing me with all of these opportunities. And, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing that could happen to me that would be worse than what my ancestors had gone through in the war. And so, you know, to me, I, I look at that and, and that gives me a lot of courage, a lot of strength to say, I can take risks. And, and that means that I can, I can take on these endeavors to help others. And no matter what the setback is with me, there's no way it can be worse than, you know, what my family went through. So, so that's, that's the basis for my strength. You know, it, it, I can't help myself when you're explaining these things, I can see them in my head. Like you, you have this way of being able to explain what your family went through that's very moving i i imagine that some of that comes from the, the the number of stories that have been passed down about those times in your family that are very well known in your family these these traumas these injustices and everything like that yeah yeah although you know not a lot was said there's very few words that were were actually talked about right 
um, I, I really had to kind of grab onto these stories and 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 pull them out of people, right? Pull them out of my father, um, you know, pull it out of my aunt and 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 really ask for these stories to be written down because that's the only way we know. But but now that I know the stories, it's my obligation to pass it down uh, to my kids and my nieces and nephews to the next generation. No, it's it's tremendously important. My experience in going to Camp Topaz, it's out, out of this little tiny place called Delta, Utah. And right. I passed it a couple of times and I wanted to make time to go out, but I've been to concentration camps in other places in the world and they are mm -hmm. uh, uh, very thoughtfully maintained and, and uh, incredible places to stand and be. Camp Topaz, yeah. there is nothing there. It there were no exactly. signs to get there. I had to get a map and follow it uh, and get there. There's a tiny plaque there with a little American flag, and there's ruins on the ground. Tea, uh, you know, yeah. uh, teapots and car doors and things like that. Nothing standing out there. Nothing maintained. I was really taken aback mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. the the kind of moving on from history. This is a very important piece of history. Yeah, yeah. If you think about it, right, the U.S. government um, created these camps very quickly, right, and um, and put them in place. But I think that you know the government knew that this was a disgrace. This was the wrong thing to do. And so once the camps were closed, they did everything possible to scrape the earth of this. And so you can imagine, you know, one or two generations, there's going to be no nothing there unless there's memories that are put in place uh, in, in written form. Um, yeah, they, they literally scraped the, scraped the land. Uh, there were 18,000 people in Thule Lake. And if you go there today, you don't even know that it existed. It's obliterated from kind of the, the, the cultural memory of, of the country. Well, I'm 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 really glad that you are willing to talk about it here because I know that it's the source of a lot of shame and pain for the people who endured it. And and I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, yeah, there, there's a lot of yeah shame and pain that that came from it. But if you can kind of flip it around, right, and to use that as a source of pride for having survived it, but then also thriving and and using that as a source of strength, I think that's. That's probably the most positive thing that can come out of this. So when were you born? Um, I was born in 63. Okay. So I just, I just celebrated my 60th birthday last well, I, week. Happy yeah. birthday. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so, so 1963, you're, you have mm -hmm. brothers and sisters. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the youngest one. So my mom still calls me the baby. My my ninety three year old mom, <laughs> yeah. and and so so you're in this family that has had to rebuild from the from the ground up, mm -hmm. that has a mindset of understanding what real suffering actually is, and you start thinking some higher thoughts about what is possible in the world, and you you're starting to kind of grow up, and uh you. Where did your mindset that you have now really begin to kind of start? Where did that all come from? Yeah, yeah, um, that, that that's a great question. Um, I I was one of these people who had, I don't know, I I knew where I was going, right? Um, 
I, I remember back when I was five years old, my grandmother asking me what college I was going to go to. Right. I mean, who does that? Right? <laughs> um, so, so I knew, you know, college was my destiny. Um, when I came out of high school, I applied to one college. It's crazy thinking about it now, right? Um, kids, kids these days, they'll apply to 30 colleges. I, I applied to one and it was to, to go to UC Berkeley, right? <laughs> and by the way, I didn't get in. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I applied. Uh, I, I had a 4.0 GPA. I had high SAT scores and all that. But I, I didn't realize I applied to the you know, one of the most popular universities in the most impacted major. So I applied into electrical engineering, um, which electrical engineering, computer science. And, and so they had, you know, thousands and thousands of people applying to this major. I just figured, you know, I had decent test scores and all that. I was going to get in. So I only applied to one college. Um, they denied me and uh, I had to get accepted on appeal for that. Um, but, but I knew, you know, when, when I got into electrical engineering, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, but then once I started electrical engineering, I knew my path, my career path, which was to take a technical background. I had business going through my veins from the Tabuchi side. Um, I knew I wanted to combine business and, and electrical engineering, high tech work. Um, and then I had a very strong interest in international um, business. And so I studied Japanese language, and uh, I knew that I was going to get my MBA right after that. So graduated with electrical engineering degree, went and got my M MBA in international marketing, went overseas, um, studied and worked um, in Japan, uh, went to Hewlett Packard after that, right? And, and so started my career that way. Um, but during that time, focused everything on international business in the high-tech world. Um, and it turned out that that was a, a great career choice. So um, it's kind of interesting. My my life has been a series of 18-year cycles. So my my education was 18 years, starting from, you know, kindergarten through to get my undergraduate and graduate degree, right? That was my first 18 years. I then went into the high-tech world and spent 18 years in that. So Everything was about international business in the high-tech side. Um, <clears throat> worked overseas in Japan, worked overseas in Hong Kong um, as the Asia Pacific region manager. So was exposed to you know, a dozen countries in really the very start of the heyday. So visited Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, India, Australia, just traveled on a weekly basis um, most weeks covering about three countries every week. So um, was living out of suitcase, visiting, you know, hotels in different countries and all that, um, <clears throat> which, which really propelled my career. Um, there were a lot of electrical engineers in high tech, of course. There were some who had MBAs, but nobody had international experience together with business and with high tech. And so that became the foundation. I called it the three-legged stool for my career. And it allowed me to, to propel my career very, very quickly um, up into senior management within Hewlett Packard. Um, and, and, and to that end, um, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the managers that I had met in Korea, actually, his Korean uh, sales manager, 
um, turned me on to this book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by S Stephen Covey, right? <clears throat> and so he gave me the book. And uh, during my travels, I read the book and took all of the exercises very seriously. Um, and one of the exercises was to Im imagine your own funeral and what it would be like and what are people saying about you at your own funeral, right? And, and that exercise took me probably about four months to go through to actually seriously imagine myself sitting at my own funeral and, and what's being said. Uh, that, that was a life-changing exercise for me right? because <clears throat> up until then, I was such a hard-charging business person. I was spending literally you know, 90, 100 hours a week just focused on my career, right? And, and by the way, at the time I had, you know, twin boys, newborns and my wife, and we all had traveled to Hong Kong. Well, I was working the Asia Pacific day at that time. At the same time, I was working probably four to six hours in the middle of the night, communicating back with my California division. Right. So, so that exercise really caused me to stop and think, right. Which is what is, what's my life about? what's what's it all about what's what's the meaning of life and and what's the purpose of my life and so through that Stephen Covey exercise I realized that it, all, all of these things about you know meeting quota you know getting paychecks and raises and and um, you know new positions and all that it's all pretty superficial right in reality what my life is is meant to be about is having a positive impact on everybody that I encounter. Right? And, and so that became my life mission. Right? And, I, and I know that you know, at, at my deathbed, uh, I'm not going to worry about you know, hitting 130% of quota in, cre in Q3 of 2003. Right? That doesn't matter. Right? What really matters are the lives that I've touched, the people that I've impacted positively, and, uh, and, and making that difference. Right? And so that became, you know, my life mission after that. So that kind of goes into, it sounds like you're 42 years old, you decide that it's time to retire. You've gone to the top of your division in Hewlett Packard, you're there and you're infused with this kind of sense of this existential need for more meaning out of right. the work that you do and the way that you spend the hours of your week. And so at, at this point, do you know what you're going to do next? No. Mm -mm. Nope. Um, it, it was really interesting. To, as I was in Hewlett Packard, right. Um, I, I was, I was highly technical to begin with, but then my managers for some reason saw this insight that I could have a bigger impact managing and leading people. Um, I went kicking and screaming. Um, I wanted to stay technical. Um, but what I what I didn't realize was how fun it would be and how fulfilling it would be to coach people, right? And to mentor them. And so I started taking on mentorships of, of people. And, and, and the best thing about it was I always viewed that, you know, about 50% of my reward in the job was the paycheck that I got. The other 50% was the fulfillment that I got in helping other people um, succeed. 
And, and so that's what I started doing. And little did I know that, that that would also propel me to higher levels within the corporation um, to the point where I, you know, I got to be, you know, senior manager at a pretty young age and people still saw promise that I was, you know, going to be VP, executive VP, who knows, you know, how far I would go within the corporate chain. Um, and I stepped away from that and, and people couldn't believe it. They're like, you know, you were, you were in line to become the next general manager, next, you know, VP, executive VP. And yet you turn that down and, and you're retiring early. Right. Um, my boss once told me, he said, you know, Jim, you're really hard to manage. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm like, I, I hit my objectives, you know, run a really good team. We have, you know, three, 400 people on my team and, and almost no attrition from my team. And he said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. He said, I could threaten to fire you and you wouldn't care. Right. And, and I said, yeah, that's right. I said, you know, financially, I could leave this job right now and, and, and I could care less. Right. I, I have what I need to live for the rest of my life. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm financially independent. Right. So um, it's, it's funny after that, all of our one-on-ones that we talked about were about, him achieving financial independence. <laughs> so, um, so, so yeah, I was, I was able to jump away from the high tech world and, and I knew that my life would be about helping people. I just didn't know in what direction. And, and so I, I have these, these metaphors that I use that, um, that, that people can either be an arrow or they can be a feather, right? An arrow, if you think about it, you take this arrow, it's sharpened arrow, and you have a target, right? This concentric circles on this target. You aim that arrow and you try to shoot it as straight as possible, right for the dead center of that target, right? You know what your goal is, you know how you're going to achieve it, and you just shoot for it, right? Um, the flip side, though, is a feather. And if you're familiar with um, the story of Forrest Gump, right? Um, there's this, this white feather that just kind of follows along where the wind blows. Right. right? And Forrest Gump, that was his life. He had no idea that he was, you know, going to go into the military or that he was going to be this, you know, football, you know, college football star or a ping pong star in China or whatever it was. Right. He just, he, he just let the wind take him where it was going to go. So, so if you think about the first part of my life, I was that straight arrow, you know, shooting to be an amazing international businessman in the high-tech world. And I achieved it, right? The second, you know, phase of my, my professional life, though, has really been as a feather, right? I, I go to where the wind takes me. So what that means is that opportunities present themselves. And when I get those phone calls, most of the time I'll say yes to what they are. And, and what that's led me to is just a, a huge amount of um, opportunities to help people that I had no idea that um, were going to come into my life. And, and so, yeah, today I'm, I'm that Forrest Gump white feather that's kind of floating around according to where the wind is, is taking me. And, through, and so you, you have this knack for knowing 
knowing the strengths of people and understanding very subtly their weaknesses as well. And throughout the years, you you when I've spoken with you, you've so kindly pushed me into doing things that I wasn't thinking that I needed to do, but you course correct in a very gentle way. And, and it's always based upon values. What are the values mm-hmm. you're going here? What's the foundational good that you're trying to do here? Let's start with that. And so you've, you've obviously been able to come to, and it sounds like that you got really good at it at Hewlett Packard, the ability to recognize people's patterns, those with potential, those with various weaknesses that they either know about or don't know about. How mm-hmm. did you come to just be able to read people like that, know those who have the X factor, I guess, the, the kind of it, and, mm-hmm. and those that that need to hear a certain thing that can course correct them? How, where where did that all come from? Yeah, I, I, I don't know, actually. Um, I, I know that uh, my mind synthesizes things um, in, in ways that I don't think anybody that I've met synthesizes in the same way. So what I mean by that is I, I can take in a huge amount of data um, and, and from that gain some pretty unique insights. Um, I, I used to do this uh, from a strategy standpoint, um, you know, within within my career. I would take customer reports and I would take um, bug reports and industry information, you know, typically like a, a foot of, of material. And I'd go off to a library and a coffee shop and and wander around at a college or just get into some deep thinking. And from that, come up with a strategy and a really sound strategy of how we can take our organization forward. Um, I, I don't know where that comes from, um, but my mind is able to, to just synthesize a lot of things and kind of put it into the computer and, and then come out with some very simple strategies. Um, I also do that with people, right? So, so a lot of it's just through observation, through listening, through understanding their environment, seeing the world from their eyes and uncovering what could be really breakthrough opportunities for them. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Um, I had an engineer in Singapore who had um, who, who came to me, who was very, very troubled, was getting ready to quit the company, didn't know what he was going to do with his life, um, and, uh, and, and was really just kind of distraught at that point. And, and I listened to him for a while and I said, you know, I don't get it, right? You're in, you're in a perfect position now where you're in Singapore, developing country, um, the, the, the government has already said that they want to go in the high tech area that we're in. All you have to do is to assert yourself into that area and, and you can be an amazing resource for yourself, but also for, for the overall, you know, country. Uh, he came back a month later and he said, Jim, he said, I'm, I'm now having dinner with the uh, director of economic development for the country of Singapore. And, and I'm now part of the strategic initiative for where the country is going. And he said, it's all because of what you talked, talked with me about. And he said, now my career is on a whole different trajectory and I see the importance of what I'm doing. Right. 
and and so um yeah so so a lot of it is just that that ability to to synthesize and maybe to see some things that that others don't from from a very high level perspective um i i, I was um I, I created this program called the catalyst leadership development program where we take high potential leaders and really tr- help to turn them into true leaders right um super fortunate to have this program you know under my wings where um, all these people, I, I viewed them as, as these big jumbo 747s, um, on, on the runway, getting ready to take off. Right. And, and the gift to me was that I had now had this classroom full of these 747s who had, <clears throat> they, they were wonderful people already employed having gone through their education and were identified as being these high potential leaders, right? So I looked at them as these 747s who'd been developed, designed, equipped, manufactured, fully fueled up, ready on this, this runway, ready to take off. I just had to figure out how to release the brake. And once that happens, all of these high potential leaders then can take off and soar. And, and and so I'm seeing it today, you know, kind of the fruits of that labor where they're, they're now CEOs, chief financial officers, you know, uh, general counsel, all, all of these just amazing individuals who are now leading. And all I had to do was to figure out how to release that break with them. And, and now they go and soar. So that that's a lot of what I do today. Well, so... In your work that you've done with me, I ob- I come to you and I explain a big idea and I'm usually already down on the other end of the football field at the 30 yard line. You're still standing <laughs> at the at the at the other end zone and you go Okay, well, let's start with step 1 in this whole how did how did you start down this road and you always pull back to a center that is that is is mission focused is values focused and i i just i'm i'm assuming that that comes from some um just base level of wisdom some spiritual background or something like that 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 you really are in tune with so where does that kind of come from um that that's a great question i i actually don't know um although i i I have a deep-seated understanding that y- your values should not change. Um, to to me, I view that I'm one person, right? How I'm speaking with you on this podcast is exactly how I would speak to my 93-year-old mother, or to my kids, or to my my wife, or anybody that I'm coaching. Um, that I don't believe in masks. Right. Um, a, a lot of people when, you know, you, you think about when they're going to work, right. They wake up, they look at themselves in the mirror, they brush their teeth, get ready for work and all that. They put on whatever their, their uniform is for that day. They get in the car, they're grabbing that steering wheel as they're driving to work and they're putting on a mask. They're putting on successive masks, to where they get into work and now they've got this mask on that's completely different from how they were at home. Meanwhile, um, when it's time to go home from work, they then take off those masks, right? 
I don't believe in that. Right? I just believe in being who I am. Um, I, I got that feeling actually pretty early on in life. I remember being, I think it was like fifth grade, right? But you, you start to, you know, uh, le learn cuss words and things like that when you're in elementary school and you start to, you know, use those words when you're there and all that. And, and I knew it's like, if I ever use those words at home, right? My, my parents would kill me, right? Not literally, but I mean, I'd be in, in bad trouble. So I figured like, why, why should I use different words when I'm at school than when I'm at home? That's too difficult to do. Let's, I'm just going to be the same person I, as I am at school, as I am at work or at, at home, right? And this is in fifth grade, I came to that realization. And so therefore, after that, it's like, yeah, just be the same person. It's a whole lot easier to do that. Um, but then, you know, as part of that, the same person means that you're really based on a set of values that you have. And, and those values just became developed over time and, and, and what worked for me, right? Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, at the same time in my life, I was learning that I really preferred the taste of Dove soap over Irish spring because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, I ended up having a lot of it in my mouth. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I just avoided that, right? Yeah. Um, th th there was another thing that I avoided, um, and that had to do with um, drinking alcohol, right? And and I don't, you know, I don't fault anybody, you know, who who chooses to drink. It's just that when I was I was ten years old, you know, very very vivid memory for me. I was 10 years old and I was um, uh, washing sidewalks at, at my father's store. So he had a, a bunch of pigeon poop and all that that we had to wash off. Um, and so I remember, um, you know, taking out the hose and all that and I had to wash off the sidewalk. Well, there were homeless people that were sleeping on, on the sidewalk. And so in order for me to do my job, I had to speak with them and uh, and talk with them and ask them very politely to move so that I could do my job, right? And the story that just kept coming up over and over and over again where these people were homeless um, and they, they, they lost their, their, their wives and families and kids and, and house and all of that because of drinking. And so I just chose at that point, yeah, it's like, I don't need to drink. <laughs> Um, fast forward, I lived in wine country, right, for 16 years. <laughs> kind of a tough place to be without, without being a drinker. <laughs> um, but some of these things, they were just, you know, very early lessons in life. Um, I, I remember being about 16 years old, and I had a job at, you know, Tabuchi's department store and all that. And I remember that I had, uh, with the money that I had, I had bought this cool little boombox, right? Um and, and I think it cost like a hundred bucks. And I was so happy and I was showing it off to all my friends in the drum corps and all that, that I had this little boom box and, and I got a lot of pleasure from it. And I was really happy to own that. And, and then I stopped and I was like, this isn't right. Why am I so happy? Because I bought something. If I gain happiness from purchasing something, then something's wrong in my life. And, and so I thought, I shouldn't derive happiness from buying something ever, right? And, and so that's where, you know, material things just became, you know, 
non-consequential to me. It's just like, I don't care about material things, right? They don't mean anything to me. And, and so, and, and I don't get enjoyment out of, out of material things. And, and so what that meant to me is that I didn't have to rely on money to make me happy. Again, very early, early, early lessons in life. Well, probably a big reason why you were financially stable enough at 42 years old to make a major change for yourself is that you had been very mindful of the blessing of money and mm -hmm. the, the, the careful way that money can create good in the world and can create stability early in life if you are careful with it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So to me, money didn't mean possessions or happiness. Um, money meant freedom. Yeah. And and I stopped thinking about money in terms of dollars. And I started thinking about money in terms of time. And the whole idea is with the amount of wealth that I have, <clears throat> if, if I were to receive no more money in life, meaning I lost my job and, you know, no money was coming in. How long could I live on my current wealth, given given my current lifestyle, right? And so I started thinking about my wealth in terms of months, right? If you have one month's worth of, of expenses in your wealth, then that means you can live a month, right? Um, but, but as you start to save and invest, um, then your wealth starts to build up. And at some point, it's like, I don't need to work anymore. And that, and that's true freedom. Right. Um, and, and once you have that freedom, then you're free to do whatever you want at that point. And it's, that's actually something that, that I, that I do that my, what I and I does we've, we've got this program where we essentially program in all of our expenses, all of our, uh, all of our income, and it shows you how far you have without income to be okay. Yeah. Right. And when right. you can grow that period of time, there's this strong sense of strength, mm -hmm. freedom, and 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 that all of that sort of thing that comes along with with the financial freedom. So, yes. yeah, and 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 then you get to make a decision like you did when you were 42. So since you were, since you've been 42, you mm -hmm. had 18 years since that time, you've done a lot of different things. And all of these things have been helping people build themselves, both in organizations and one-on-one -on -one with people. And so what yes. you, you are done with your career at 42 that mm -hmm. that part of your career and you move into new things what are the values that you use to decide where you need to be um so so it's all about helping people um i've chosen to do a lot of helping of people typically young adults right and here's the reason why um if you help somebody who's let's say 20 years old right and that person can live to be 80 plus years old, then that means you've had a, an impact on them for the next 60 years. And not only have you helped them, but you've probably helped the next generation and the next generation after that, right? And, and so 
so, so that's been a real area of focus for me is to, to help young adults. Um, and so that's been in the drum and bugle corps that I've, I've been part of and, and helped to grow. Um, that's been in um, the catalyst program where it's really high potential uh, young adults to be successful in, in their careers, but more importantly in life. Um, and then this most recent venture that I started up uh, last year called the Empower You program, which is all about um, first and second generation Asian Americans who are um, either immigrants themselves or their parents were immigrants. And they're really trying to figure out how this you know, American system works and how they can kind of align their lives to be successful. Um, and, and again, you know, if, if I'm able to help them when they're in their 20s, this can help them for um, multiple generations going forward. Um, and, and I've done a lot of things in, you know, in this past 18 years to do a lot of, you know, one-on-one -on -one coaching, but then also organization building um, to the point where, you know, I, I probably have, I don't know how many hundreds of people that I've mentored during this time. Um, and, and by the way, when I, when I mentor, I, I always say that I mentor for life, which means two different things. One is I'm mentoring them for, you know, for their, their life skills and so forth. But, but I never stop mentoring them. So when I take somebody under, under my wings to mentor them, I, I will continue coaching them as, as long as they continue asking for that. And so I have some people that I've been mentoring for, you know, 30 years. Um, you know, one of the people that I've, I've mentored in China, he's now a CEO and I'm, I'm still in contact with him. <clears throat> um, and, and so, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of what I've done has been, you know, mentoring individuals. I'm I'm starting to to kind of change my mindset now, which is um, taking what I've learned personally and what I've mentored and how, how I've helped to coach people, and I'd really like to get it out to the masses, right? So so if I'm able to help a classroom of twenty five, why why should my impact be limited at twenty five? Is is there a way for me to impact? 250 people or 2,500 or 25,000 or 250,000. Can, can I go bigger with some of these lessons that, that I've learned and I've been able to teach? Um, so, so that kind of occupies my mind right now is, is there a way to, to now get out some of these lessons in a much, much bigger and broader way uh, to impact a lot more people? I, I haven't figured that out yet, um, but that occupies a, a real large part of my mind right now. You know, with regard to the part of parts of your mind that this occupies over the years, mm -hmm. I have received various out of the blue texts from you. And they're generally texts that come from this state of very deep existential contemplation. And you'll ask me a question, you know, as a therapist, what role do you see the healing the healing aspects of music being able to play in the way that mental illness is healed in the larger community and and you know i'm washing the dishes i read a text like that and i go man Jim is in a different space right now. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. I need to give this some thought and then get back to Jim a little bit later when I can focus up a little bit, <laughs> you know, and, and then it launches into these wonderful kind of contemplative discussions that we have about just simply what, 
what is it that, how would you make music a thing that heals people who are suffering? And how would you then expand that into a community thing that anybody can attend because everybody deserves to have the gift of music in their heart for the for healing for community for connection and everything like that you spend time thinking about these deep issues and i just kind of imagine you in your backyard looking at the stars thinking about these things on a on a relatively free you do you take time that is that is often for you to to actually think these things through um, I don't, I don't know if I, if I dedicate time, right. So I don't like go to the beach and listen to the waves or anything like that. I, I don't meditate. Right. Um, but I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of thinking and, and sparks of insight, you know, come up. Um, <clears throat> um, the whole idea of being a serial social entrepreneur is, is very relevant here. Um, and, and I'll give you an example, right. Um, so I had this this spark of insight, which is you know we're we're doing music programs and we've <clears throat> we we're at forty three elementary schools running these band programs, right? Um, so so we'll have about thirteen hundred kids as part of this program, right? So it's so it's a big program. We started with eleven. We're not thirteen hundred kids and all of that, but there's one school that we haven't gotten to, right? And it's called the Baker School, um, for kids with special needs and i'm like why aren't we doing something over there right why can't we use music to impact these kids lives who have special needs so so i start dabbling into this and you know do some reading and research on it and some some approaches with it but but in my mind i'm thinking okay so the first time we do it it's going to be a pilot right but the second time we do it we should start writing down what works the third time we do it, we should start developing a curriculum. The fourth time we should start taking this out to other different school districts and other different populations. And, and, and then the fifth time we do it, we should start, you know, broadcasting this na nationally on some techniques that we use on how to do it. Right. So the whole idea is, yeah, let's impact 12 kids. Now let's get to 160 at that point. But, you know, why can't we, take some of these learnings and publish and develop uh, to where we can impact the lives of, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of, you know, special needs kids and impact their lives through music. Right. Um, so it really is this whole entrepreneurial approach to doing some things that would be of service, but doing it with more and more and having a bigger and bigger impact with this. Yeah. So this is a, it's a living one that's that's an example right now that we actually just started talking about yesterday the focus that you have consistently worked on with me is focus on the message focus on who you're helping focus on the good that you are trying to affect in the world don't focus on the money focus on the values exactly right right um and focus on stories, right? Uh, I, I'm a hoarder when it comes to stories. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not a hoarder in any other way, right? If you look at, I, I have three bookshelves behind me, right? In the past, these bookshelves were completely filled with books. I ended up 
giving away 95% of them. I think you can see just a few books over here, right? Um, those are important books to me, by the way. Um, but but I, I don't hoard anything else, right? I don't even hoard money or anything like that. But I, I hoard stories um, because stories are those things where um, if you're doing your things right, you can have these stories of impacting people's lives. And, and those are the best things to have, right? These stories are perfect examples of the good things that you've done in life that have had positive impacts. Yeah. So that's that's really what I focus on. I want to ask you a, an even more personal question here, and it has to do with the role of fear and insecurity. And I know yeah. that you know things that I have dealt with personally and things that a lot of people deal with is a fear of change, a fear yeah. of not measuring up, a, a, a sense of not being... The, the whole imposter syndrome thing and fear is a huge driver for people in making decisions that are filled with safety instead of values and everything like that mm. in your life have there been times where fear and insecurity is something that you've had to overcome not really no that that fear is That's not the sense i'm getting <laughs> it's it's not in my mindset right um, I, I have this saying that, that runs in my mind and it's something that I coach on as well. And the saying is, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Right. So if you really think about that, right? if I take something on and it fails miserably, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? Not much really. Right. Um, Maybe I lose my job. Maybe I lose some faith. You know, I lose the time that I put into it. So what? I'm going to go and start something else, right? And and I coach people about this, right? Um, so I coach a, a lot of really high-level executives. I mean, CEO-level executives. And, and when they're thinking about, you know, risky ventures that they're going to take on or something that, that they're going to move forward with, I, I ask them, what's the worst thing that can happen here, right? And, and for, for them, typically it's, well, they lose their job. That's the worst thing that can happen. And then so what, right? Highly talented people, they can go on and get another job somewhere else, maybe even better than where they're, what they're currently at. And, 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 and so that's something that, you know, I, I coach people on that. And yet I don't need to really use that. I mean, you know, some, some of the ventures that I'm, I'm involved with, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, it fails miserably. Okay, fine. Let's redirect. Let's figure out what went wrong and let's make it better. Or let's go do something else, right? Um, yeah, so fear doesn't, fear doesn't enter in my mind. And again, it gets back to the, you know, early stories of my, my ancestors, right? They had, they suffered from so much. Um, they they took risks to be here in the United States and and they succeeded, right? So what do I have to fear? Really nothing. Well, in, in and in your discussions with people who are working with you about mm -hmm. the role of fear and insecurity and everything like that, have you seen people severely or even partially limit their potential because they act based upon these these kinds of things and and 
what what has been your kind of takeaway from that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, I, I have. Um, one one of the things that that I've employed in my management leadership style, um, I like to call myself a demand assist manager. So what that means is that I I demand high performance out of the team that I'm leading, right? But I'm also very clear to say I am ready to roll up my sleeves, right? And and get in the trench with you. I'm going to roll up my sleeves, and we're going to work together to make this initiative successful. Right. And, and so what that does is it, it provides um, a, a level of focus towards excellence, but it also allows whoever I'm leading to know that I'm in their corner completely. Right. And that I'm going to do everything in my power personally to help them to be successful with what they do. Um, and, and so I think a lot of that provides assurance. Um, I, I also tend to not be super critical i'd rather focus on the positives than on the negatives um, because i think if you're critical with somebody it just puts this this bug in their brains right this this negative bug that's in their brains and it holds them back from doing you know from from really moving forward as as quickly and effectively as possible and, and so i like to you know promote and and prop people up rather than cut them off and and degrade them. And, and I think that's that's probably the most effective way to lead people. And with regard to characteristics that a person can have that ends up being somebody who is limitless at, mm -hmm. at a high level, what are those characteristics that you generally try to foster in a person or that you see are a natural part of their just kind of personality? Yeah, I think that I think the biggest thing is confidence, is helping people to understand where they've come from, where they're at now, and the, and using that to build confidence, and to take small successes and make sure that you're you're um, celebrating those successes because that's what gives you the confidence to move forward to the big next bigger one, right? <clears throat> um, and and I would say you know back to the whole idea of helping leaders and helping them remove that break, um, that's the biggest thing. Um, what I see in people is that they have a self-image of them that is really antiquated. And so a lot of people have a self-image of them when they are five years old or eight years old or, you know, the youngest child being bullied by siblings or by, you know, bullies at school or, um, you know, having critical parents or things like that. That That's a lot of their own self-image is back antiquated back when they were that young. Meanwhile, they've gone on to be successful in education and careers uh, and all of that. And yet their self-image is still stuck back when they were eight or eight or nine years old. So what I do is try to help them to, to get a more updated sense of who, the, who they are. So a lot of coaching that I do, best thing that I can do is to be a perfect mirror to somebody. All right. And to to let them see themselves truthfully for who they are today. And, and, and when they see that, then in most cases, they, they then update their own self-image and realize that, yeah, they are not who they used to be, but who they are right now. And that gives them a better sense of how to go forward. You're doing therapy with people. 
Is that what it is? <laughs> I didn't even know that, right? And so, and by the way, so I am not trained in soft skills <laughs> at all, right? <laughs> I, I took one psychology class when I was at Berkeley and it was a pass-fail class. And I think I barely passed it, right? So, so I am not trained in any of this in a formal sense. It really is kind of learning by doing. It this is so what you're doing is so impactful, and I find this not not only in myself, but in a lot of the clients that I am working with, mm -hmm. this sense of I, I, not arrested development, but certainly this concept of self that goes back to many, many, many years ago, and a self concept that may include loneliness, isolation, mm -hmm. feeling stupid. Feeling yep. alone, not feeling smart, these mm -hmm. sorts of things. And, and it can be very damaging, particularly the kind of modern education system that really adheres to a style of learning that is really good for certain kinds of minds and not that great for other kinds of minds. Exactly, and so younger yeah. people can get a real mistaken sense of mm -hmm. what their actual value is. And they grow up with that and they, and they hang on to that. Even mm -hmm. if they get into high levels of things, they have to kind of unstick themselves from these earlier memories of themselves. And it can it can be really really affecting for long periods of time exactly yeah it, it can it can carry on with them for their lives right um a perfect example so i was coaching this uh this one woman um she was a middle manager at a large corporation and and it was our first one-on-one -on -one discussion <clears throat> and she said jim she said um, i just want to let you know that i um i have a, a very horrible speech impediment i've had it all of my life um this is gone and, and carried through with me all throughout my life. I remember back when I was in elementary school being teased so much that I would go home, you know, running home crying because, you know, I stuttered and, and I couldn't get my words out. Right? She said it exactly like I just did right now. And I said, you know what? Congratulations. Whatever speech impairment you had before, it's completely gone. You are, you are so articulate now. So I said, from this point forward, um, you've, you've, been, you've been holding this ball and chain and you've been carrying this 200 pound ball and chain around with you ever since you were that little girl back being teased. I said, from this day forward, we're gonna cut that chain off and you're gonna leave that 200 pound ball behind. Right? Because whatever you have done in your life, you have now completely overcome that speech impediment that you had previously. It, it was so liberating for her, right? Um, she went on about a month later and she gave a talk at the state capitol in front of 400 girls with their moms in front of this, this large audience, right? And, and was just amazing in her, in her presentation, right? Um, and to this day, she's now articulate. She, she, she no longer carries that ball and chain around with her. And she now has an updated sense of who she is. Um, so many people, if you can just, you know, release that break, they're ready to soar, right? And that's a huge part of what I do. How many people do you work with 
that have something like that kind of hanging on their shoulder? <laughs> Almost all of them. Yeah. yeah. Almost all of them. Yeah. In, in whatever way. Right. Um, and, and, you know, a good part of that is just like, you know, Hey, whatever you've had in the past, it's not working. Right. Let's just figure out how to get rid of that. So you can soar. Yeah. That's, uh, that's incredibly insightful. And, it was not that long ago, maybe a year ago, that you started doing a deep dive on the concept of moral injury mm. as a as a thing that it. In, I'll go ahead and attempt to explain it the best that I can. You can help sure. correct the idea of moral injury being a kind of psychological scar that is obtained when a person is asked to do things, perform functions generally at a workplace that is against their own internal set of values or feeling what is right. It is a concept that is heavily related to burnout mm -hmm. and happens quite frequently. And I've thought a lot about this since you started writing about it and talking about it, the concept yeah. of moral injury. And I thought about the times in my life when I've been morally injured at work because I I I read a book that you may have, have read uh, called Bullshit Jobs. And that that book changed my life. It was about the concept of how many people have jobs where they don't actually do anything good for the world, mm. where they're just mm. clocking in, clocking out. The work is meaningless. It's not challenging. They're working with people they maybe don't like per se, and they're continuing to do it because there's some reward. It's the paycheck. It's the pension. It's the this. Mm. It's the that. So they continue on doing the work, even though there's really no purpose that they personally see in it. And uh, it was not long after that, that I made some pretty strong changes in my own career. Um, but, you know, you've, you've done this research in this, this concept of, of burnout and moral injury. And you've been asking me throughout the year, a number of questions about how how would you work with this? How would you help people that are involved in this? Can you talk a little bit about this concept? Yeah, yeah, I'd be glad to. And and again, this is one of those areas where it's just, you know, I, I don't know how my mind was drawn to this topic, um, but what I saw was, um, especially during COVID, especially during, um, you know, um, race protests uh, through things like, you know, talking about defunding the police and, and um, first responders um, having issues and all that, I just kind of put two and two together and, and made a thousand. <laughs> um, and to, to say that this is prevalent, it's all over the place. And I started seeing this in, in nursing and in education and law enforcement and in every place where you started seeing people who just wanted out um, for whatever reason. Um, and, and the whole idea of, you know, you have this little boy who, who grows up wanting to be a police officer and, and, and sees the, you know, bright, shiny car and the, this, you know, beautiful uniform and having the belt and all of that and helping people, right? Um, goes through and, and gets their education, um, goes to the academy, actually becomes a sworn police officer. And then, you know, you know, people start talking about defunding the police and being afraid of police and, and being fearful for, you know, those who are there to really protect and serve the public, right? And 
And so then you see, you know, these police officers who say, why am I doing this? This isn't what I got into, right? This isn't why I got into to police service. You know, I chose to be in this, to be in, in service to the public. And, and now the public sees me as an enemy, right? Um, you see this in, in places like nursing, where the whole idea was to, to help their patients, to help the patients and the families and being subjected to, you know, having to go to work and PPE and being sheltered and isolated from their patients and causing, you know, during COVID having to, to shun the families from being able to see their very sick patients that are there and having to assist these patients go through, in some cases, um, their transition into death um, in, in loneliness and, and, you know, nurses seeing, you know, this isn't what I signed up for. Um, you know, uh, teachers who feel unsupported and who had to go into work and kind of risk their lives even during COVID and, and, and again, saying, this isn't what I signed up for, right? So, so really that, that whole sense of moral injury being prevalent in the workplace and, and in people's lives. And, and, and it was kind of misdiagnosed, right? People called it PTSD or they called it burnout. And, and the whole idea of, you know what? Yeah, they're burned out. Let me send a bouquet of flowers to them, right? Or, and, and that'll make them feel good. Right? No, that's not it, right? It's it's not this Band-Aid solution to their moral injury. You really have to get back to where they are. Why did they choose this, this area of profession or the, the, the work that they, they do? Because in some way that represented the values that they have in life. And you've got to get back to those values, which means understanding the, so the stories, the success stories, having those really at the tip of your fingers so that you can say, yes, I got into this profession to do good. And here, these are some examples of where I have really done good in, in my career and my life, right? And I wanna do not one more of these, I wanna do hundreds or thousands more of these so that I can become this hoarder of, of these positive examples that are congruent and, and absolutely true with the values that I hold in my life. Um, and, and by the way, you know, th this idea of, of, of doing jobs um, that, that, you know, you're clocking in and clocking out, I, I, I've actually thought that you can find meaning in whatever job that you have. It doesn't matter what job you have, you can find meaning in, in that job. Um, I've been tempted to, you know, almost go out and volunteer like on a weekly basis, right? Go and and uh, work at a at a fast food restaurant and work in the back and flipping burgers. I know that I can find meaning in that job. I don't know what it is, but it probably has to do with um, uplifting people that I work around, of being of service to others. Um, I, I I don't think it. I think I could find meaning in whatever job that I could, that I could find. And, and part of that might be, yeah, going around week by week and, and actually volunteering um, to do work and, and finding meaning and maybe writing up on what that meaning is in, in some, in seemingly meaningless jobs, right? I do believe you can find meaning wherever you go. I'm just trying to take this all in, quite honestly, because 
Now we're we're living in this world right now that is so full of strife and there's so full of anxiety and and hatred and fear. And I, I certainly am seeing a lot of this in the people that I am treating right now and relationships being affected by, by things that would have been trivial 40 years ago, but seem very, very present and weighty today because of the change of the, the lens of what is important today versus what was important it seemed about 40 years ago mm. and um so i'm 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 watching this world of people that s- seem highly highly affected by things that maybe maybe aren't as weighty as they make them themselves some of these issues are very important and and but also there's a, an assignment of meaning and severity to many of these things that that our society is dealing with right now that makes yeah, people... give, give, give me an example of one of those right so we're to, i'm i'm talking yeah. about uh in a, in a polite way our political landscape uh okay. the 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 red versus blue the uh the, the social strife that has been present for very very vividly for the past three years uh, a, a a sense of if this person votes for that person mm. then this person supports people i hate and therefore this person is a bad person and you focus really highly on the higher aspirations of a human being uh, mm-hmm. uh really far above the thing that i was just talking about uh are are what effect are you seeing of the kind of overheated social political and uh, class-based kind of dialogue that's going on right now uh, in in people how's it affect how are you seeing it affect people yeah. So, so first of all, I, I have to let you know, right? I am not political. Yes. <laughs> I, I've been asked to run for office mm-hmm. um, a few times, right? Um, I've always very politely said, no, that's not for me. Um, I have more personally within my family, I've told them, if I ever talk about running for political office, take me in the backyard and shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> um. And, and there's a reason for that, right? Um, I, I believe in being who I am, right? And I believe that um, I, I am, you know, you could argue I'm, I'm a pleaser in, in a lot of different ways. Um, and I don't like the idea of almost 50% of people not liking you because of a letter that goes behind your name or a color that you're associated with, right? Um, in the grand scheme of things, that shouldn't matter, right? It's just that we're all here as people. And if my whole mission in life is to have a positive impact on everybody that I, I encounter, it really doesn't matter what your affiliation is. Um, I'm, I'm here to have that positive impact with whoever I encounter. And and so yeah, you, maybe I I tend to stay up higher higher level, which then means that I'm not kind of in the fray of things, um, and and yet I I do believe that there is a lot of room for 
um, a lot of just civil discussion and, and having containers that are there, safe containers for people to discuss feelings openly, right? Um, and, and to share in a safe environment um, disparate views on things. So where are you going from here? What are you doing? Um, so, so like I said, my focus is on that. I, I think I've acquired a lot of knowledge and, and experience, right. Um, through my first 18 years of education, my second year, 18 years of corporate life, my third 18 years of helping people and mentoring. Um, and I think my next 18, is it my last 18? I don't know. <laughs> um, is really taking that and, and, and giving that away in, in a, in a much bigger and a much broader way. So the things that I've done with individuals, being able to take that to, you know, thousands of people at this point, I, I developed this, this idea of, I wanted to impact the lives of a million kids. And, and that million is really important because it causes you to do things in a different way. Right. So for example, if I'm, I'm the uh, drum corps director for the Mandarin. So that means I get to impact 150 plus kids per year, right? So let's do the math, right? A million divided by 150 means that I would have to operate for 6,666 years to impact a million people. So I can't do that. I have to think bigger, right? Um, I could think now to being on the board of directors for DCI, Drum Corps International. And in that case, impacting the lives of 5,000 kids. So now let's do that math. That means I'd have to do that for 200 years in order to impact a million people. I hope you're taking I'm getting closer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm getting closer, right? But still, I don't have 200 years to live. So what that means is I have to start impacting I don't know, on the order of 100,000 people per year. And that just causes you to think differently. What that means is that um, I, I need to think in a more systematic way. I have to think about empowering others to impact the lives of others um, and, and to really think in, in that bigger and broader way. Um, one, one example is I have, I, I call it my trillion dollar challenge for myself, right? And that's to create or to help create um, young people who can become millionaires in their lives. And if I can help a million young people to become a millionaires in their lives, that's a trillion dollars. You just do the math, right? Um, so impacting a trillion dollars of wealth that way. Um, not that I want to see any of it. Actually, I don't want any of it. Right. I don't want my one percent or anything like that that you know wealth managers um, take in. I, I don't want any of that. But what I want to do is to figure out how how I can impact the lives of a million people um, to become millionaires in their lives. Right. Just forces me to think a lot differently. So so that that's where my mind is right now. Is is now how to impact more people in in bigger and broader ways. Don't know how to do it yet. So if you have any ideas, let me know. Right. Yeah, I'm working on it too. <laughs> uh, so, 
So let's just talk about money for a second here. And sure. there's this Abrahamic kind of biblical concept that uh, money is the root of all evil. I think that is a, that is a specific uh, um, um, scripture among many that is really misinterpreted. Uh, a misunderstood in every single way because uh, obviously wonderful things happen based upon people who handle wealth in a Ooh. positive way for the positive reasons, for the right ways and everything like that. So what is real wealth? What is sustainable wealth? And and what? how is it that people should be thinking about money? Yeah, wealth wealth is time, right? Think about it. The, the thing that we we all have a finite amount of is our time. That's it. And you can't buy time, right? So what wealth provides you with is the ability to use your time in whatever way you want and, and to do the, the most and the best good. That's all it is, right? Um, to, to use wealth for big, for bad things or to hoard wealth uh, or to think that that's going to be the biggest driver in your life? No. Wealth just all it does is it buys you time. That's it, right? I I had this opportunity. Um, <clears throat> so so after graduate school, I, I I went to the University of Washington up in Seattle. I was uh, highly recruited after graduating from this little company up in Washington called Microsoft. Okay, little company. I've heard, I've heard of it. Yeah, you've heard of them, right? I was recruited to go there. Um, and, uh, and, and actually, I, I went and I interviewed there, went for several on-site interviews at their, their headquarters. And I saw in the offices um, treadmills, stationary bicycles. One, one manager had a pull-out bed that was unmade in his office, right? And I said, what's this all about? And they said, um, the, the cafeteria is free, so you have all the food that you want for breakfast, lunch, dinner, however you want. Um, you never leave, have to leave here. Right. So they were, they were basically creating these people who would work, you know, 80, 100, 120 hours a week that fit directly with my personality. If I had joined Microsoft at that time, I would have been one of those workaholics and would have never left. Right. My car would have never left the, the parking lot there. I would have been there with Bill Gates all that time. That was probably, you know, some people can look at that and they can say, you know, Jim, that was probably a hundred million dollar, maybe a billion dollar mistake that you made by not taking that position, right? But, but I knew at that time, I would not have been married. I would not have had my kids. Um, I would have been a slave to the company and my life trajectory would have been completely different, right? Um, so I chose not to take that position, actually, and, um, and 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 yet I still was able to make enough money in a fairly young age to be able to buy my freedom, which then allows me to go on and do bigger and better things. No regrets, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe well, I would have owned the uh, I would have owned the Oakland A's at this point or something like that, right? <laughs> but that wasn't that wasn't my approach. Right. Well, and and you've made decisions that have allowed you to act based on your values and help the people that you feel most passionate about helping. 
and to have the freedom to move around in the world and do things that actually create a greater sense of health for you. You were looking at that decision based upon your just emotional long-term health. Do I want money or do I want children? Do I want a family? Do I want to be a titan of industry that lives in an office? Right, right. Yeah, and that was uh, that was an early decision. I think I was probably, what, 22 years old at the time? And, and certainly the lure of going to this, you know, great company that's, you know, just starting out. Um, the lure was definitely there. Um, but yeah, I, I, I passed on that opportunity with, with no regrets. So what I'd like to do now is Jim, would you mind just talking directly to the viewer, to, to the person who's watching this and who's been listening to all of this through what is it that you would tell a person who is in their career trying to figure out where to go, maybe at the precipice of a, a major decision or deciding what where they want to go with their future? W what is it that you would tell people as a guidepost for how to move forward in their lives? Yeah, yeah. Um, sure, sure. I'd be glad to. Um, so, so my biggest piece of advice would be to know what is your long-term mission. Right. What is your vision for your life and, and how do you see your life actually ending up? Right. Um, because that will put your 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 ultimate lighthouse. Right. The, the direction that you go from here on out will be based on that. Um, I, I use that that um, example exercise of envisioning my own um, my own funeral. Right. And sitting in the pew and looking behind me in, in the pews and seeing, you know, were there five people, were there 50, were there 500 people there? You know, how many people were there? Who, who's there? Who's, who's missing? Who's not there? And, and ultimately, you know, as, as the open mic happens, what are they saying about your life? Because that's the legacy that you want to leave. Um, and, and really grappling with that, understanding what is your life legacy and where do you want to go? Because then what happens after that is all of those life decisions that you make um, must be consistent with your life legacy. Um, so in my case, right, if, if my, my whole idea is to have that positive impact on everybody that I encounter, what that means is that I'm forbidden by my own values of having a negative impact on somebody, which means that I can't lie, cheat, or steal with that person I have to uplift them. I have to provide coaching. I have to provide value for their life because that's my life vision, right? And I have to stay consistent with that. <clears throat> um, so so that would be my recommendation is, is really understand to that deep level of where your life is going and what your life is going to mean. And then just um, make your actions and all of your decisions um, be consistent with that. I hope that helps. It's been super helpful. And everything that you've you've told me throughout the many years has been really helpful in making sure that I'm staying on track with what's real as opposed to what's attractive and what's flashy. And uh, you know, that it's been it's been really helpful to just have you in the background 
what I've called you at really pivotal times in my career. And it's this kind of advice that has really helped form and shape the the decisions that I've made and the steps that I have made and the ways that I've recovered from things that have happened. And so just, you know, on a personal level, thank you for always being there and your constant patience. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. I'm I'm glad that I can be here for you. And I'm glad that, that I'm somebody that you'll call, right? Um, because as I say, it's, I'm your mentor for life. Well, I, I I do feel really lucky for that. And I just, I also wanted to just kind of clear a moment here for you to say anything that you had wanted to say here that perhaps you didn't get a chance to say. Um, yeah. So, so as I, as I think about things in, in a big way, right. I, I, I don't think in terms of the, the, the individual one-off situations. What I think about is how can we how can we do things in a much bigger way? And certainly one of the things that's kind of weighing on my mind right now is our mental health crisis, right? And, and to see that uh, a big part of mental health issues come about from early childhood trauma and to see what is it that we can do in a, in a very, very big way, right? Um, to either cause trauma to not happen, to, to eliminate trauma early in life, to address it early, um, to free that ball and chain, um, but to address it in, in, in a very big way, right? So I know that, you know, trauma can be, addressed and mental illness can be impacted on a on a one-on-one therapy basis and that's a huge part of what you do um but i think about the millions of people who don't have access um and and what can be done for them uh i i don't know the answer i'm sure if there was a simple answer that was out there it would be done already but that's that's where my mind gravitates to it's how do we help how do we help the hundreds of thousands of people in, in a very big way? Um, I, I think of that even in terms of things like literacy, right? That literacy is combated a, a lot today on a one-on-one basis. You have an individual who's reading to an, a, a child and helping them to become literate. But but is is there a different dynamic? Is there a different way where you know we can address it for millions of kids at a time? So, so that's where my mind is right now. It's it's helping to be part of a solution to some very big, big challenges that we have in a very big way. Because I know that the, the individual one-on-one way, while it helps that individual, doesn't help the masses. We've gotten away in the way that our society is set up from the concept of strong communities. The Those communities historically being the people that you live around and Mm -hmm. that's we don't have that same connection to the people that we live around that that we had in eons past and that lack of connection and community is a lot of what creates what you're talking about here this sense Mm -hmm. of what is it at its core a difficulty in belonging because a lot of those wounds 
that you are talking about childhood wounds and these sorts of things. They are often corrected historically going back through a sense that you belong just as you are, Mm. that Mm -hmm. you are Mm -hmm. okay the way that you are. You might be different. You might have what we call schizophrenia these days. You might Mm. um, just look different or, or be different in some way, but there, when you are accepted the way that you are, it goes a long way in just feeling okay. And there is a, there is a strong sense that, that there's a strong lack of community that that's happening. There's a strong sense of focus on on success and perfection as defined in a very specific kind of way. And that creates the kind of isolation that it pushes people into over-identifying with negative Mm. aspects of their life and their, their history instead of being accepted and feeling a sense of forward momentum and feeling a, a true loving sense of community. Community is incredibly important for a human being. So when you're talking about the macro sense of what can we do to improve the lives of people in a big way, you know, individual therapy and music and mm-hmm. these various different things are definitely helpers of that, but community is critical. Yeah, I know that you have done a lot in trying to create great communities. Yes, I've I've, I've tried, um, and yet and yet they're small pockets, right? Um, I I just think that you know where I'm at in my life right now, it's it's that I don't want to only deal with the ones or the tens but really help in the thousands or the tens of thousands. And so that's where my mind is right now. And, and that's really this fundamental shift that I have in my mind. And, and it really is the 18 year cycles that I go. And it's, it's very appropriate that last week was my 60th birthday, right? Because that triggers my next 18 going forward. And, and so that's where my mind is. And if, and if it really is communi- creating communities, then it's not a create. It's not creating a community of 10, but how do you create a community of thousands or or plant seeds where communities can be built with thousands and thousands of people? That that's that's where my mind is going. And and so I'm really thinking in terms of big and bold at this point. And that's where the whole idea of my title as a serial social entrepreneur comes about. Because now I know some of the problems and I know some of the solutions, but now how do you take that into a a very, very big way. Jim, thank you so much for being a part of this and for sharing your your knowledge and your just base level wisdom in, in this. It's really appreciated by, by me and all of the people who are going to listen to this out there. I just really appreciate you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me here. And, um, and, and stay tuned. I don't know if I'm going to come up with any solutions in my lifetime, but um, you know, I'll be trying. If you do, come back and we'll talk about it. I'd be glad to. I'd love to. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everybody. I'm Jeremy Van Wert, the CEO of High Altitude Mindset. Now go be something great. <laughs>